Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for this Church Times panel discussing the question, does the parish need saving? And there's been a huge amount of discussion and debate around this question um, in recent months um, and obviously covered in the recent General Synod campaign where we saw a number of candidates elected under the uh, Save the Parish banner. A really good panel here joining us this evening. So firstly, we have the Rural Dean of Haverstow and the Rector of the Waltham Group in the Diocese of Lincoln. That's the Reverend Kimberly Bowen. Then we have the Diocese Secretary of Bangor, the Reverend Sean Reese evans We have Canon Angela Tilby, who is a Canon of Honour at Portsmouth Cathedral and also a member of the Save the Parish Network Steering Committee. Then we have Bishop Andrew Rumsey. He is the Bishop of Ramsbury. And we have the Rector of the Ascension Hume, the Reverend Azariah France Williams. I've given our panel two set questions, which they'll be answering. So just to start off, we're going to ask the, the question that's the title of this evening's panel, which is, does the parish need saving? And I'll turn over to Kimberly first to answer the question. Thank you. So for me, the question, does the parish need saving? Depends on what you hear when you hear parish. If parish is about the church's commitment to the whole community, the attempt to preserve a Christian presence in every place, then that's an ideal worth clinging to. But if parish is about a commitment to historic buildings and the expectation that we can do all things in all places, no matter how few people there are, then I think we may need to let go. If the strength of the parish system is its embeddedness, bearing witness to the incarnation through presence and particularity, being with, and the weakness of the system is that it can limit our sense of belonging. Sometimes belonging to place has become more important than belonging to Christ. I've met too many people whose loyalty to one building and one community was such that if for any reason they couldn't worship in that one place, they wouldn't worship at all. And that was never what the parish was meant to be. So I sit lightly to the question of whether the parish needs saving. I think where it's healthy, it won't need saving. It will have the love and support of its community and it will carry on. And where it's not healthy, then let's imagine new ways of belonging and working together so that we can hand faith on and ensure that there really is a Christian presence in every community. Thanks so much, Kimberly. Um, we'll now turn to um, a voice from Wales. We've got the Diocesan Secretary of Bangor, the Reverend Sean Reese evans Thank you, Mads. Does the parish need saving? Uh, theologically, ecclesiologically, does the parish need saving, which is to ask, is it of the essence of the church? Well, no, only the diocese needs saving by that measure. In the beginning, there were 12 bishops and Mary, the Mother of God, on whom the Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. And as an Episcopal church, it's good for us to remember that we are the people of God gathered around their bishop before we are parishioners. And priests exist because the bishop can't preside everywhere. That might sound a little provocative, 
but it's important to keep it in mind because considerations of the parish can bloom into a sort of idolatry, a sort of English exceptionalism. It's good for us to remember that patterns of faith, hope and love that are non-parochial have existed and continue to exist in these islands, bringing blessing and reform and renewal in their wake. We can think of pre-Augustinian British Christianity, Cistercians, Jesuits, Methodism, arguably the Oxford movement, certainly Oxbridge College chaplaincies and central London churches, those most non-parochial of parish churches. We should learn from them. Yes, place and history and community are important. Yes, it's sad when something that has been dear to us declines and fails, but we are called to anticipate worshipping in spirit and in truth. And sometimes the old order changeth, yielding place to new, and God fulfills himself in many ways, lest one good custom should corrupt the world. More prosaically, the apostolic task here is workaday and twofold. First, we need to achieve viable, worthy parishes, and that involves significant changes in terms of the number of buildings and the number of Sunday morning congregations in a large number of places. And secondly, we need to invest in new and cultivated expressions of witness that don't involve a nave and a chancel. And doing those two things, the former being the main task and the tougher of the two, doing those two things requires perseverance and hard work and a culture of trust and Pentecostal apostolic leadership. Thanks so much, Sean. Um, if we could move next to the Rector of the Ascension Hume, the Reverend Azariah France Williams. Thank you. I think that the parish saves us, frankly. And by this, I mean the area, the community surrounding the parish church, open and honest engagement with local stakeholders. In the introduction to a new booklet of case studies for Hartedge, which is an ecumenical network arising from St. Martin in the fields. The network is attempting to find new ways of funding and sustaining mission, which comes from enterprise and open engagement. Um, the Reverend Samuel says, rather than settle on a model of church and strive to reproduce it far and wide, this approach perceives how the Holy Spirit is working in the world and sets up a tent there harnessing the spirit's energy and yoking itself to the world's imagination. Heart Edge is a movement that finds inspiration in what churches and communities have discovered by following the Holy Spirit into the places where the face of Christ is to be found. This process requires humility because one has to renounce the notion that one already knows what Christ means and how the spirit works. One might say, and what the church is, it requires appetite and eagerness to learn new tricks, to make new friendships and join new struggles." End of quote. I'm an odd bird in that I'm attempting to find where I am based in, in Hume, the parish within the parish, with a conviction that the parish, the partners, the people, our wider community will be the saving of us, those who represent the church in our various guises. I'm also a recipient of Church Commissioner's SDF funding. I hear a boo and a hiss from some of those uh, watching this, but I'm not a resource church. 
I hear a boo and a hiss from other people in the audience. We're more an experiment in co-creation and co-production with people and places of peace within our orbit. But I understand the worry that can arise when buildings are deteriorating, Zoom moves from a prism to a prison, our volunteers are vulnerable and so no longer available. And we as clergy, those of us who are, have been also exposed and made vulnerable by the pandemic. It's impacted us too because we're not invincible, especially when it can seem as if there's a torrent of top-down initiatives of pastoral reorganizations where the first word doesn't seem to apply that much. So that's uh, some of my thoughts. I think that the parish can save us. Thanks so much, Azariah. We, we don't see any boo or hiss in the comments section so far. <laughs> Thank you for your thoughts. <laughs> um, we're moving next to the Bishop of Ramsbury, Dr. Andrew Rumsey, whose book um, on the parish um, I highly recommend from 2017. Um, and then another book coming out, I understand, in November. Um, but it'd be lovely to hear your thoughts. Does the parish need saving? Thanks, Mans. Good evening, everybody. Uh, yes, I think it does. Uh, I think the country needs saving too, by the way, and that God is able to accomplish both of those miracles. Um, but saved from what and for what? Uh, firstly, from a resourcing crisis that's the outworking of long-term changes in British life that began before most of us were born, but which have gathered pace in the last 20 years, uh, namely steep congregational decline in many places, though not everywhere, and the twilight of nominal or secular Anglicanism in national life, which the parish epitomizes and, and holds, if you like. This has been a long time coming. I think the strength of feeling that the Save the Parish movement has generated in some quarters of the secular media has surprised many in the church, but it's a groan from a deep place, from the bowels of inherited culture. Parish expresses a covenant with the nation beyond the congregation, which no other idea or word captures in the same way. I believe it's vital that we retain it. And secondly, from being devalued or eroded either because the material challenges of sustaining it are just too great or because to some degree we tend not to know what we've got until it's gone without flogging it here my purpose in writing parish was to help the church to see what it did have to understand that legacy and saved for what well uh, the parish is a, a rehearsal space for the kingdom of heaven uh, in which our love for god is practiced in our love for neighbour. It's a pledge that the Church of England is not fully a church without a defined bit of the material world for us to serve, most especially in parts of the country from which other institutions may have withdrawn and where isolation and deprivation are most keenly felt. Common prayer needs common ground. Thanks so much, Andrew. Um, so finally, we're moving to our very own Church Times columnist, Canon Angela Tilby. Yes, thank you very much. And yes, I do think the parish needs saving, um, partly because it's being crushed out of existence at the moment by the financial and administrative demands of dioceses. Um, we've been astonished, I think, since we launched Save the Parish as a, a tentative venture in a way by just how it's been like letting the lid, letting the lid off a volcano. Lay people and clergy from all around the country who feel they're just, just not being listened to. 
and um, actively exploited, in fact, by some dioceses. Many have lost a parish priest, the parsonage house, um, and at the same time is constantly being asked for more money and being threatened with closure or further amalgamation. And I have to say, and it's tragic this, there's an awful lot of bullying going on at the moment. Now, I think the reality is that the church has taken some big wrong decisions based on panic and a flawed understanding of what's really going on at the moment. And as people often do when they panic, they've tried to impose a top-down system of control instead of partnership. And while there's been much talk about mission and halting decline, in fact, the church is being driven into a spiral of death by amateur managerialism and sheer bad theology. The only thing we really know about church growth comes from the church's own report from Anecdote to Evidence in 2013, which suggests that growth comes from dog collars on the streets, from increased clergy living close to those to whom they minister, knowing people as individuals. The local is where it's at. And the, the point about the parish is that it's small enough to be human, to make real the fact that the Christian faith is faith in a person, God incarnate, and that faith is nourished by worship and by personal relationships and by personal care. If you drive down clergy numbers, you drive down congregational numbers, which then drives down giving even further, which means clergy become unaffordable. Now, I'm not trying here to denigrate other mission initiatives. The church has always been a missionary body and parishes themselves have extended themselves into new housing estates when there have been demographic changes. You know, I, th I think of tin tabernacles and daughter churches and all the ways this has been done in the past and now being done. I'm delighted that Azariah has got strategic development funding. That's fantastic news. But all too often, parishes are not eligible to apply for this funding, which is being poured into um, all sorts of experimental mission communities, which may or may not work. At the moment, I don't think they are. And my worry is that all this is happening at the expense of the parish, coming from a place of despair, and it's not working. Thanks so much, Angela. Um, our second set question before we move to your questions um, is one that reflects um, an anxiety, I think, that people feel that they haven't been heard correctly or they've been misunderstood in the current debate. So I wanted to ask the panel, um, what frustrates you about the current debate? And we'll go again to Kimberly in Lincolnshire. Thanks. Huh. So what frustrates me in this current debate is how quickly we seem to turn against each other. Some of the rhetoric around Save the Parish has been hugely combative. Sometimes bishops and dioceses have been set up as enemies to be opposed, as those who wish the church harm. The Church of England is an Episcopal church, and we don't exist without bishops. We're in this together, sharing the one ministry of Christ. But the Church of England is also hugely diverse. Change at this scale is not going to be easy, and we will get some of it wrong. So I think we need to give each other the benefit of the doubt. If the Diocese of Blackburn or the Diocese of London thinks it can find a way to fund what looks like traditional parish ministry, then so be it. But if the Diocese of Leicester or Lincoln says that we need to think differently about how we work together, then let's give that a chance and trust local knowledge and context and see what we can learn. There have been things said in the debate that worry me. I don't think that models of the church that imagine entirely lay-led congregations are true to Anglican identity. 
I don't think we talk enough about theology or ecclesiology as we imagine plans for restructuring. But the idea of church plants and multiple expressions of faith in one place, that causes me no concern. Let's let diversity flourish and help people find the communities they need. Ever since women were ordained in the church, the Church of England has advocated a model that says the parish is not the only option. Diocese is not the only option. Some people choose to affiliate with congregations and with bishops based on what they believe. The ship sailed a long time ago on a pure parish model. What frustrates me is pretending that things are simpler than they are, or casting those who disagree with us as the enemy. We deserve better from each other. We deserve a sense of belonging and shared purpose and giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Thanks so much, Kimberly. And we'll go over now to the Reverend Sean Rees Evans in Wales. What frustrates me, I, I fear that in some places and among some people, uh, those who are disenchanted at the moment, that combination of spiky priests of my generation and younger and um, older liberal boomers, there's a lack of understanding of the extent of the crisis. We're confronted in large swathes of the country by the results of several generations worth of denial about issues of finance, building configuration and maintenance, inadequate worship and teaching, and deficient ministry and leadership. That denial has been costly. Its consequences are now baked in and the crisis is real. But the, rule, the roots and the scale of the crisis also mean that the alternative solutions I see being suggested by the disenchanted at the moment are insufficient to the task. The answer simply can't be more atomized parish priests funded from legacy income. That model is in part what got us here and it's not deliverable at scale anymore anyway. I guess I should also say I find some of the headlines generated by bishops and archbishops in response to the disenchanted rather bleak as well. It seems to me unhelpfully ambiguous for bishops to keep saying that all they're trying to do is to support, uphold, build and sustain the parish church. When the task of essentially reformation that's taking place is, yes, aimed at local vibrancy, but does also involve substantial change to the architecture of what most people will know as the parish. But finally, I guess that like Kimberly, I'm frustrated by the frustration. This is such a bad tempered debate in many places. There's a circle of heaven reserved for long suffering central diocesan staff, but even with that promise, accusation of exploitation, of amateur managerialism and of bad theology are unworthy. I guess that just as many parish churches are unviable, mainstream liberalish majoritarian Anglicanism has also become unviable within the church and we're left with competing sects and odd alliances and very little common ground, which especially at a time of austerity results in a lot of scratchiness and little trust and that's sad. Thanks so much Sean. We'll move now to the Reverend Azariah France Williams. Thank you. When I um, uh, think about 
the frustration that I think it's uh, it takes me back in my own history to my mother's history and experience of um, of a parish that um, that didn't accommodate her and didn't accommodate her life, although she was a, a cradle Anglican. And so I think some of my frustration arises from um, uh, sometimes a, a thought of a parish which, uh, which still to some is, um, is unfriendly, to some is, is even hostile. So I think I, I wonder, you know, what, what our definitions are, what our experience of um, our parish churches may be, because they're not uniform. So that's uh, something of my frustration. Something else of my frustration is um, is the disconnect. So there's the, um, as I mentioned, I'm a recipient of church mission SDF money. And so one of the things I, you know, there's a phrase which is um, uh, nothing about us without us is against us. And the degree to which um, I find I have to get everyone around a table, as it were. So whether it's uh, church commissioners or diocese or uh, bishop or PCC, and there's a constant work to try and pull um, pull us together so that we can all hear one another and and find um, common cause and common purpose with this. And and so I think there is a frustration there as well that uh, sometimes things can be um, disconnected and, and needs quite a, a big effort to um, to pull people together so we can hear one another an equalization of, of voice and uh, a demonstration of real listening um, to what's happening on the ground uh, with the people for whom the decisions most impact. But then there's part of me which isn't frustrated actually. There's part of me which thinks that this type of conversation, the nature of this debate, um, this dialogue that we're having even now, I, I think it's gonna lead to something better. And so for me, I want to look beyond the horizon of the of the storm and to see what might lie beyond. One of my favorite films is The, the Wizard of Oz. It starts off in black and white and ends up in color. And I, I really do think that there's a, a possibility that beyond this storm, something um, better could be over the rainbow. Thanks, Azariah, I love that. <laughs> we'll move over to uh, Bishop Andrew now. Thanks very much. I agree with Azariah. I, I welcome the uh, the conversation as well. It's tough, but it's really important that we have it and it's timely too. But it does have its frustrations. Um, for me, four things very briefly. Um, the apparent presumption of a centralised plan to dismantle parish ministry, including the closure of church buildings, and replace this with alternative schemes. I don't believe there is any such project either from the archbishops or the national church institutions partly because that would be soaring off the branch we sit on, and also because the way that the church organises itself is, of course, regional, and different dioceses are making different responses to similar challenges. That isn't to say that some local schemes might not undermine the parish system, but they are just that. They're local. They're not centrally orchestrated. Uh, secondly, I regret that, as others have said, it hasn't felt a very godly conversation thus far. I worry that our common life the grammar of which is love, holiness, peace, is being so rapidly remoulded by social media that we barely realise what that's doing to us. Dislocating, polarising, increasingly breeding mistrust between fellow members of Christ's body. Like many people, 
I'm deeply concerned about the public witness of Anglican Twitter in particular. Related to this, I think a breakdown in communication this debate has highlighted between those actively engaged in institutional leadership of the church and many of those either in the pews or near them. Uh, the way we describe the church is too often being lost in translation. It doesn't feel real to people. And this again breeds mistrust. Uh, lastly, parochial nostalgia in myself and in others. Uh, the ideal of one priest to one community has in rural areas certainly not pertained since the 1950s. And the parish simply couldn't have survived for a thousand years without being incredibly variegated and adaptive. Rather like the village, the parish is an evolving model of community and it's changing again in our time. I agree with Sean about that. Insisting it can only be one thing or one size is almost a guarantee of losing it. We are seeking a city that is to come. Thanks so much, Andrew. Um, we'll just move finally to Canon Angela Tilby. Thank you. I think if my I have an overwhelming frustration, it's about a level of dishonesty it seems to me that for quite a number of years now, there have been some very big, bold sounding plans um, brought, for example, from the Central Church to the General Synod, framed in ways which make any debate about those plans, about the principles behind them, really difficult. If you're a clergy member of Synod or a lay member of Synod, you don't want to speak against your bishop when all the bishops seem to agree with each other. It's actually quite difficult to find ways in which we can speak to each other about this, especially when we're, we've got a hyperbolic language about growth, um, but the strategies seem to me often to come from a place of despair. Because you know you don't get rid of decline. You don't stop decline by getting rid of your best assets. Um, dioceses seem to assume that they have a, a right to control the parishes, to take what they need, and then to close churches and sack clergy when they've stripped their assets. Um, senior clergy talk quite glibly about how much they love the parish while they walk off with the proceedings of of selling things that are precious to people. There's been an awful lot of this. And I think the problem is that the church just seems to me to be ignoring the vast cultural forces which are disrupting Western European society at the moment and driving us to a decoupling of faith from society and an increasing individualism. The answer to this isn't to turn the church into a business marketing a particular kind of personal experience or a particular model of community. The decline is real. But I think we also need to remember it's not the first time that the church has virtually died. At times during the 18th century, the church was in ruins. There are extraordinary accounts of Christmas Day in St Paul's Cathedral with about five people present. This was, this was real. It all fell apart. And then it started up again as it does. Things changed. And even now in our cities, churches that were dying are reviving, thanks largely to worshippers of African heritage and Iraqi and Iranian heritage who have come in. So I don't think we should be despairing, except that we are in very fallow times and we need to get our priorities right rather than by driven by despair to, to kill off the thing which is really delivering the goods. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive.
go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.